From New England Public Radio in Springfield, Massachusetts, this is Annie PR News Now. Stories you really should not miss. I'm Sam Hudzik, the news director at New England Public Radio. And unless I'm counting wrong, which is certainly possible, this is our 52nd episode of this almost but not always weekly podcast. So one year in, thanks for listening. All right, coming up, a free speech versus student safety debate in public schools. I would let a student wear a a Confederate flag on his shirt to school. I would tell him that I disagree and I would tell him why, but I wouldn't use coercive measures to prevent him from doing it. And an off-the-books test for opioid users to see if their drugs are spiked with fentanyl. We're getting the feedback from actual users, like, this is an amazing idea, like, this has saved me. Then, the future of daylight savings comes up for debate across New England. You know, the minute you set that that clock back and it's darker earlier, it's just... Yeah, yeah. And researcher Linda Mapes spent one year studying one tree. I have spent so many hours napping under this tree, thinking, climbing, photographing, making notes, being with my tree. All that just ahead on NEPR News Now. Can a school prevent students from wearing the Confederate flag? The school committee in East Hampton, Massachusetts, did just that last week, raising questions about the rights of students and responsibilities of educators. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen reports. East Hampton School Committee member Peter Gunn cast the only vote against the flag ban. Gunn says schools have to be careful about restricting freedom of expression. The better response to this is for us to be educational and to prepare young people to have the strength of their convictions and the confidence of the support of their community. For all those reasons, I would let a student wear a a Confederate flag on his shirt to school. I would tell him that I disagree, and I would tell him why, but I wouldn't use coercive measures to prevent him from doing it. Natalie Poirier, a parent of two East Hampton High School students, says racial tensions have been growing for more than six months, and the school should focus on student safety. Instead of focusing on freedom of speech, because it is not freedom of speech when you're in a a school building. It is about keeping all students safe so that they do not have disruption in education process. Ask an attorney about the free speech rights of students in a public school, and they'll often cite the 1969 Tinker case. Students in Des Moines, Iowa, were suspended from school after wearing black armbands in protest of the Vietnam War. At first, a U.S. district court backed the suspensions, saying the protest disrupted learning, but the Supreme Court disagreed. Bill Newman is a lawyer with the American Civil Liberties Union. The Supreme Court said no because undifferentiated fear or apprehension is not a basis to say that students can't speak freely in schools. Newman says school systems need proof of substantial disruption to education before suspending First Amendment rights. But Glenn Kucher, the executive director of the Massachusetts Association of School Committees, says some symbols, like the Confederate flag, can distract students from their right to obtain an education. If they are surrounded by symbols of hate or symbols which they can reasonably and legitimately believe generate hatred towards them, they have the right to be free of those uh, symbols. 
Peter Gunn says East Hampton High School will continue to hold listening sessions with students about racial tensions. It's his hope that these conversations will get the school to the point where they don't have to continue the ban on the Confederate flag. For New England Public Radio, I'm Nancy Cohen. Of the six people in Massachusetts that recently released statistics suggest will die today from overdoses, most will have taken drugs laced with the highly potent opioid fentanyl. But they're unlikely to realize it. There's no approved way for users to test drugs before swallowing, snorting, or injecting them. But there is an unapproved option making its way through underground networks. It takes about five minutes. Usually you can see right away one line is positive, two lines is negative. Jess Tilly runs the group New England Drug Users Union that advocates on behalf of people who choose to use illegal drugs. She's encouraging people to test drugs before using them. WBUR's Martha Biebinger listened in as Tilly showed staff at a needle exchange in Holyoke the basics of fentanyl test strips. It takes about five minutes. Usually you can see right away. One line is positive, two lines is negative. Tilly pushes aside magazines on the waiting room coffee table at the Tapestry Health Syringe Access Program and lines up three small aluminum caps. I have three used cookers and I also have empty heroin bags. So this is how I'm going to show you if we have a positive or negative results. Tilly rips the top off a plastic green pouch and pulls out a thin, flexible plastic wand, roughly twice the length of a matchstick. So when you open the strip, I'm going to test this one first. Tilly dips the bottom of the strip into one of the used heroin cookers she collected from a safe disposal box. She mixes water with the drug residue at the bottom of the cap. You just want to let it sit for about 15 seconds. Tilly lifts the strip, lays it across the top of the cooker to dry, and repeats. The four women watching this demo have seen the damage fentanyl can do, but they've never seen a street-level test for the drug blamed on the opioid epidemic's rising death toll. Now they lean in as dark pink lines emerge. So what do we have? We have positive, positive, positive. That's all fentanyl. Oh, A faint second line emerges on one strip. See, now something like this, I would tell somebody to definitely test again because that's... Right, it's so faint. There are no formal guidelines for how to use these strips in advance of drug injections. They're designed as a urine test. But Tilly, using donations, has purchased and distributed more than 2,400 fentanyl test strips on her own. I get so frustrated working within these coalitions where it's like we have a, you know, a meeting to plan a meeting to plan a meeting about overdose and nothing's happening. I'm just trying to do what I can to stop overdose. And Tilly says the strips are helping. Users who get a positive test result do not often throw out that bag or pill, she says, but they do inject or swallow less. And they make sure someone with naloxone is with them in case they overdose. We're getting the feedback from actual users, like, this is an amazing idea, like, this has saved me. Still, many people who work with drug users are hesitant. Here's why. The strips are designed to pick up the legal form of fentanyl, the kind prescribed by doctors. The illegal fentanyl mixed into bags of heroin, cocaine, or other drugs is largely cooked up in illicit labs that tweak the recipe. Do the strips detect all these different varieties of fentanyl? No one knows. A clinic in Vancouver, the one that supervises users while they inject, 
started offering the strips to clients last year. But Dr. Mark Lassishan with Vancouver Coastal Health says the test strips are only available in the clinic where a user can be revived if the result is wrong. We were concerned that if we offered the test in the community and somebody got a negative drug check, they might think their drug is safe, but actually we don't know what the results mean. But as more and more deaths are blamed on fentanyl, interest in the strips is spreading. Brandon Marshall, an epidemiologist at Brown University, has launched a pilot project asking 40 young drug users to test for fentanyl in their urine. He hopes to study pre-use drug tests with the strips later on. Marshall says he wants to find out if drug users change how much they inject or are more likely to use near someone who could call 911 if they know they are taking fentanyl. We're dealing with a fentanyl overdose crisis at the moment in Massachusetts and Rhode Island and other states across the nation. So this is just one technology that I think needs to be understood and explored. And if it's found to be effective at reducing overdose risk, broadly promoted. So far in the U.S., only one program, it's in the Bronx, is handing out the fentanyl test strips along with other so-called harm reduction equipment, like clean needles. Staff at the Needle Exchange in Holyoke would like to join them. I wish we could start doing it, like today. That's Emily Moulton. Her colleague, Lizette Salant, is struck by the cost of the strips, just a dollar apiece. They're just a dollar, because it can be and you can save a life. Moulton, Salant, and Tilly will proceed cautiously for lots of reasons. With users, they'll need to offer careful warnings about the types of fentanyl the strips do not catch. And they may be at risk of arrest, because just being in the presence of heroin and other such drugs is illegal. Police say for now, it would be up to the individual officer to decide whether to charge the person training drug users to check the contents of their drugs. For New England Public Radio, I'm Martha Biebinger. New England states are considering the idea of sticking with daylight saving time year-round. That's the time regime we're in right now. And the idea is to stop falling back and springing ahead at each change of seasons and gain a little more light on winter evenings. The New England News Collaborative's Fred Bever reports the movement is gaining momentum. The concept of adjusting the clock to suit social needs appears to be Benjamin Franklin's in a jesting bit of advice to the French to start their days earlier, work more during the sunny hours, and thereby save on candle wax. In 1962, our federal government standardized the practice of daylight saving time And now, 48 U.S. states deploy it in an effort to match work hours and sunlight. But here on the East Coast, it has its critics. Christ, you know, the minute you set that that clock back and it's darker earlier, it's just, uh, you know. Dean Pike owns the Moose Island Marine Shop in Eastport, Maine. It's the nation's easternmost city, and they see the sun first there, but they are also first to see it set. And from mid-November through early January, sundown comes before 4 o'clock in the afternoon. In the fall, it just kills us. You know, it's better for us to have it lighter later. The problem is, if Maine does it alone, look at how that's going to affect you know, you calling your suppliers. It sure would be nice if it was a region-wide decision. He could be in luck on that. Discontent with the current system can be found region-wide. Ask Keith Murphy, who moved to Bedford, New Hampshire, some 13 years ago. And I remember moving in in January, and it got dark at 4.15 p.m. I was astonished, because that was not what I was used to. 
Murphy happens to be a member of New Hampshire's legislature, and he introduced a bill back in the dark days of February that could end that state's annual clock hop and instead stay year-round with daylight saving time, also known in this region as Atlantic Standard Time. Murphy's bill has passed the New Hampshire House with a proviso that Massachusetts and Maine switch up too and that the federal government gives permission. And similar measures have passed Maine's House and Senate, also with the proviso that neighbors act as well. In Massachusetts, a commission appointed by Governor Charlie Baker is set to make recommendations on the question within a month. Lawmakers in the rest of New England have at least submitted similar bills, although no one seems to be spending a lot of political capital on the issue. But it is about a lot more than early sunsets. A growing body of research shows that when we lose that hour of sleep each spring, we suffer a kind of jet lag. Switching to daylight saving time, um, in particular during the spring, is problematic because it disrupts these circadian cycles that we have. And when it gives that shock to our system, we're not immediately able to, to change. David Wagner is a sleep and workplace researcher at the University of Oregon's Lundquist Business College. He says that in the days just after the clocks are set forward, especially Sleepy Monday, Many ills can result, with the rate of heart attacks and strokes rising, minors getting into more accidents, and drivers too. A decision-making patterns change. Wagner says judges tend to hand out harsher sentences, for instance. And at work... It turns out that people cyberloaf more, which is using their computers for things that are not work-related, surfing the web. And we also found moral awareness decreases. People are not kind of tuned into the moral implications of various situations. We've got a current paper that we're working on looking at um, policing and, and prejudice that occurs in policing, and that, that's exacerbated under conditions of sleep deprivation. But even with the mounting evidence of the problems posed by changing the clocks back and forth, there is a good deal of skepticism about changing the habit. In Maine, the Chamber of Commerce worries that business transactions, especially those with the financial capital of New York City, will be slowed while shipping and travel between border states could get pretty confusing. And in northern New England, there can be a flinty reluctance to make decisions contingent on what heavyweight Massachusetts does. And for some people who start their workday early in the morning, like Benjamin King, a barista at Portland's Coffee by Design, the morning sun is a blessing they'd like to hold on to right through winter. Because people want to start their day in the light versus, you know, the end of the day. We're used to it getting dark, so it really doesn't matter what time it gets dark. King probably doesn't have to worry, at least for the moment. Maine Governor Paul LePage, known for his well-used veto pen, says the idea of changing the current system is, quote, an insane thought. But with research and lawmakers around New England increasingly highlighting problems with the practice, it could be just a matter of time. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Author Linda Mapes spent a year in the Harvard Forest in Petersham, Massachusetts, chronicling a single tree. This red oak stands in one of the oldest and most intensively studied research landscapes in North America. It's what was called a witness tree in the 18th century, a tree that's stood tall through forest cutting and caterpillar infestations and used by surveyors as a landmark. NEPR's Carrie Healy met up with Mapes recently and took a hike to see her witness tree. Uh, MIT actually kicked in a so-called phenocam put right underneath my tree. 
and it is online if you go to the Harvard Forest homepage and put in the words Harvard Forest webcam. I'm such a geek, you know I did. <laughs> <laughs> and you can look at my tree. You can call it up anytime. It's called Witness Tree Cam. And you can watch the tree go through its day. You can check in. Back where I live in Seattle, I have actually uh, been checking on the tree several times every day. This is like Facebook for nature. <laughs> yeah, with, with network cables running along the forest floor. They're everywhere, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing about this place. It's, it's a natural wood, but it's very heavily wired. And then crawling over a stone wall. Here it is. Wow, hey, <laughs> there it is. Here it is, my tree. I have spent so many hours napping under this tree, thinking, climbing, photographing, making notes, being with my tree. It's a very special tree and it, it is a repository of so much time and so many memories and it will persist long after I do. And that's how it is with trees. I think that's why we care so much about them. You know, people and trees, trees are our oldest traveling companions. In a country as new as ours, trees are really our monuments. We don't have the very, 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 very old buildings that you'll come across in Asia and other places. What we have are our mountains, our rocks, our trees. So you spent a year with this tree as your focus. For you, was that reveal of history too slow or too fast a pace or was it just right? It was delicious. <laughs> Here's why. I'm a daily newspaper reporter, so we're very often on the chase after things. And to have the privilege and the opportunity through the Bullard Fellowship at the Harvard Forest to be able to focus and hold focus on one tree and look at its time in this New England wood was a rare and beautiful gift. It's been a meticulously observed place since its founding in 1907. And the archives here are among the finest that I have ever worked in as a researcher. There are um, very carefully kept handwritten stand records. So when I wanted to understand my tree and its life and times, I looked at those stand records and I found that it had survived the 1938 hurricane while trees just right on the other side of that stone wall actually were flattened. It was just young enough to lie down and not be killed. I also got a very detailed sense of, of the human cutting that was done in this forest for various reasons, but it was never cut. It gave me a sense of the gypsy moth attack that happened in 1984 and, and other slights that had always seemed to just escape. Speaking of forest pests, at one point in our conversation, we had to pause and swat at what seemed like millions of them. These are black flies. These are black flies. And <laughs> were these um, like this much of the time that you were out here with your tree? Actually, they are particular to the month of May. So they're right on time. Yeah. The, here's the progression of bug. <laughs> it starts with the black flies and then come the mosquitoes and all the time the ticks. And they all want the same thing. And that would be your blood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I come from the Northwest, which is a very benign place. Nothing is after you. So New England to me. These bugs are the tigers of the Serengeti. It is unbelievable. They all want to bite you, and they do. Uh, I live amongst trees and forests, so the smell reminds me of home. Mm. But you have a more scientific mind than I do. What does this smell mean for you, and could you describe it? It's so funny you asked me that question, because a little earlier today I came out just to see my tree, because I hadn't seen it in a couple of months. And I was noticing, first of all, it was a mast year in the fall, so see all the acorns all around you. 
And I saw one that had just swelled and cracked and is starting to put out its radicals, so I put that in my pocket. Yeah. I'm going to put a, a moist paper towel on it and try to get it back to Seattle and try to sprout it. I would love to have a scion from this tree back home. But the other thing I noticed was a piece of bark that had at least two different kinds of lichen on it. Beautiful colors of green, still nice and wet and juicy from Lorraine. What was the first thing I did? You I picked it up it. and I smelled it. <laughs> and that beautiful, fructifying, soilicious smell. I mean, it's just penetrating and dimensional. And it took me right back to my childhood because I grew up in woods just like these. And that sense memory of smell. You know, um, science will only get you so far. Science is essential. But at the end of the day, we need the whole person. We need history. We need art. We need philosophy. We need spirit. We need appreciation. The living world needs all that we can give it to sustain it. And a big part of that is appreciation. And in my book, I was very intentional not to scare and not to scold. Everybody's already got too much of that in their life. I wanted people to be seduced. I wanted to let the tree have its way with them, to just tumble them into a deep affection for this beautiful world that we're so fortunate to share. Linda Mapes' book is called Witness Tree, Seasons of Change with a Century-Old Oak. This podcast is produced by New England Public Radio, the same listener-supported public media company that 24-7-365, and sometimes 366, pumps news and music to your car, your home, and your phone. You can support it all at nepr.net. Just click the bright orange donate button at the top of the page. Thanks for listening to NEPR News Now, stories you really should not miss. Until next time, 